Welcome to today's edition of Invest Africa Insights, the leading business intelligence service brought to you by Invest Africa. Hi everyone, my name is George Arnold. I'm head of commercial at Invest Africa, and you are listening to our brand new Meet the Entrepreneur podcast series. In this series, you're going to hear straight from leading entrepreneurs from across the continent on how they got started, the industry changing businesses they have built, and where their companies are heading. Today, we have founder and CEO of Gabea, Amadou Dafe, joining us. Great to have you here with us. Welcome. Thank you for having me, George. So for those of you that don't know Gabea, it's an African edtech solution headquartered in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and the supplier of Africa tech talent to not only African corporates and startups, but uh, those global organizations as well. Over the past four years, this leading marketplace for top-of-the-line software developers has been growing exponentially. And earlier this year, received a huge seed funding round led by Orange Ventures and Partech, which is very, very exciting. Uh, I hope that introduction gives a little insight into the amazing platform and ecosystem that you've built, Amadou. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. So let's 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 just jump right into it. Let's go back to 2016 and start with the beginnings. So ha- tell me a little bit how Gabea got going. Tell us a bit. Tell us a little bit more about the problem you set out to solve. Yeah, so it started out with a passion of mine, uh, which was sort of, uh, how do I participate in making Africa more competitive? Uh, in a sense where um, there's a lot of stuff that we're lagging behind, anything from infrastructure, healthcare, name it. Um, it but there's one thing that we have uh, to our advantage, which is, which is the youth, right? The youth, everybody's talking about how Africa's youth is uh, sort of the youngest, uh, in the world, we're going to be the next labor force in the world and all that stuff. So I figured, well, if we're going to make ourselves competitive, we got to leverage the youth. But what kind of tool uh, should we use to sort of uh, uh, make this thing happen? Uh, so one of the things I've, I've my background is in uh, technology, software engineer. They don't want to become an enterprise application architect in the U.S. I figured, well, I use what I know best to kind of uh, you know, work through the, the process of helping young people gain the actual, the right skills, and be able to compete globally. So that's how it started, um, essentially. And then uh, that was the passion. And then it sort of, you know, transpired to being more, okay, how do I do this? So I decided to pack my bags uh, uh, out of New Jersey and move to uh, Addis Ababa in 2016, convinced another friend of mine, uh, who was my co-founder, Hiroi Emanuel, who was looking to support startups. Um, I was going to be building the skills or uh, the talent that, that we needed for Africa. And if he was going to uh, figure out a way to fund some of those who become entrepreneurs. So we moved, uh, started the company. At first, we, um, we, we were struggling with the name because we wanted to go with a name that anybody can pronounce. And if you know Ethiopian languages, well, they have their writings. So <laughs> we had to Google uh, what market, how do you write marketplace in sort of Latin letters. And Gebea came about. So Gebea stands for Marketplace. And we so started out the, the training program, which was before we can actually um, provide talent to, to, to Africa or the rest of the world, we need to make sure that they have the right skills. So we started out with the training model and then eventually uh, transitioned to the Marketplace that, that is today. Um, tell me a little bit why Addis as well. Well, there was a few options out there, right? So when you come from the U.S. as an African moving back to Africa, there's, there's when when people talk about tech, some of the few countries that pop up are Kenya first, just because of the momentum, not necessarily the size of the market. Uh, Nigeria second, if you really want to, you know, tackle a big problem where there's a lot of population, then there's South Africa. So I was not too familiar with South Africa. I was not familiar with uh, Nigeria. I've been there a couple of times in the past. Kaduna and Lagos, uh, but I've been to Addis uh, quite often with, uh, also with Nairobi, right? So I figured, okay, we'll start off the company in Nairobi, Addis, whereby Addis would be sort of our uh, manufacturing hub for this talent, right? Where we can do a lot of training because of the, and I'll explain that in a bit. And in Kenya would be more of the transaction uh, sort of entity where we can sort of transact because, you know, Ethiopia has some problem with Forex. Uh, it's very hard to pay out of Ethiopia if you have vendors outside of Ethiopia. In Kenya, they solved that problem pretty much, you know, a uh, long time ago. So, at this was uh, when you go to Ethiopia, you know the population side, and I would say, so you're not. But 
what was so interesting for me is the number of people who graduated from STEM, right? science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. It's about 400,000 people graduating every year. And it's about 45 universities. And because the country is a little bit behind in terms of tech, there's so much to build. I figured, well, Ethiopia would be a perfect country to really sort of build the foundation for what we want to do with a very high barrier to entry for competition. Let me just be honest. If you want to start a business in Ethiopia, it's not that easy. Culture-wise, there's so many things that will go into our favor, and even the sort of the hunger or the, or the drive that these young people have in Ethiopia to succeed. And they were not getting a limelight because everybody was talking about Kenya and so on and so forth. So we said, let's start off here and then build Gebeya as, just like Ethiopian Airlines has, you know, conquered the continent, right? They started off in Ethiopia and then in every capital city in Africa. So that's really why we chose Ethiopia. No, it's, uh, yeah, as you say, right, the, um, it's got such a huge pool of, of talent and there's a real focus in Ethiopia, especially in, in sort of tertiary education of, of focusing in on science and engineering. Um, and I think you've sort of hit the nail on the head, right, with, with sort of trying to transition that into, into real sort of, you know, tech skills and developing that. Um, so, so far you've been, my understanding is you've been sourcing a lot of these developers that you've trained to, to startups, um, not only across the continent, but globally. Um, where have you had most success so far? Um, and sort of, sort of, let's also at the same time take a couple of steps back and sort of, you know, how do you go about creating that marketplace and, and making sure that companies come to you for, for that tech talent? All right, so there's two ways two, two way you're looking at it. So for, for sourcing talent, um, uh, the greatest thing you have to do is you have to have your boots on the ground. You can't just assume there that you know you have talent in Nigeria or Cameroon without being there, without understanding the dynamics, without understanding what, what the school systems are and all the different things. So we, we believe that we, we've have, we have enough talent we can get from Ethiopia. I can literally build the entire marketplace of, 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 of Gebeya just by using Ethiopian talent. However, the demand comes from everywhere. Right? So, for example, Ethiopia, they do speak English, but they may not speak French. Right? So if I do have clients who speak French, right, which is uh, maybe one-third of the continent, right, then you, you run into a problem. So we need to diversify our talent pool. But there's also this specialty around the continent. So if you've seen the continent now, every country is kind of labeling themselves around one particular thing they do well. For example, you, you look at somewhere like uh, Nigeria, FinTech is huge, right? You look at even Rwanda is more on drone tech. So everybody sort of, without saying it, they're the, the entrepreneurs who start up those businesses in this country are kind of shaping up the future of the, where the, the country would go in terms of technology. So if you have to, like, like a, lot of, a lot of data scientists in Cameroon because they have a tendency of being very good at math, then that's where you're going to get your data science uh, talent, right? So that's how you got to look at the content. And I'm still learning. Right? I haven't figured it out yet, but we'll take it a sort of a step-by-step approach and listen to, to the industry, listen to the market, listen to the universities, who graduates and what, at what rates, and then we'll, uh, then we'll, we'll, we'll make a decision that way. But your second question was, um, can you repeat that again, sir? Yeah, absolutely. It was talking about like where you've had the most success in sort of putting these uh, the talent that you've sort of developed. Where where have the startups been located? Where have the companies that you've been working with located? Um, yeah, tell us a little bit more about that. So, so the, at, at first it was the U.S. Uh, just because of my U.S. background, I brought in you know a reputation with me where people were just contacting me, you know, in my inbox and asking because they heard what I was doing and they kind of trusted me. Then he started transitioning to Europe <laughs> uh, because we had a few press release or uh, media coverage in Europe, France, and uh, that's why it's no accident that Orange Digital Ventures is one of our investors, <laughs> just because then the narrative went to Europe. Um, and, uh, and then third, uh, now is Africa. 50% of our clients are African, from Nigeria, from Kenya, some from Ethiopia, a lot of them from Senegal, believe it or not. We have two clients there, corporate clients, telco companies. I can't mention names because you know, it's a competition there. But <laughs> So we have these different kind of dynamics where things are shifting to Africa. However, the, what the, the way we wanted to build this company is pretty much focused 
primarily in African markets. What we believe is, and COVID is actually shifting that up, Africa demand for tech and digital transformation products and services, what have you, would sort of grow exponentially in Africa. The question is, do we have enough talent to help that, that, that boom? Or are we going to still compete or import um, uh, external talent from Eastern Europe, from China, from India, so on and so forth, to help us build this? If Africa goes that path, we are doomed because somehow we have to take care of our youth. And technology is a sort of low, lowest barrier to entry for this youth. So my ultimate goal is to make sure we have enough talent in the continent to serve primarily the business, small businesses, startups, <clears throat> multinational, NGOs, what have you, that are in the continent. Because so far, they've been hiring a lot of expats, which costs a lot of money, uh, you know, location factors. I'm not sort of saying it's a bad thing, but they should be at some point that Africa should be self-sufficient. By doing that, we would have more impact in the world because people would see, oh, okay, well, the same talent you get in UK is the same talent you get in Ghana. So what's the difference here, right? Is it more of cost? Is it more ability, creativity? So it's going to be more, that makes us competitive enough so we, we debate at a different level. We don't debate anymore, oh, they're cheap or, you know, they're in Africa or they don't have internet. It's more, uh, well, we have quality talent in Africa right now and it's going to continue to grow because of the age sort of gap that you have between, say, Europe and Africa. So that's really the, the strategy there. Which is a bit different from our, some of our competition who look more of using Africa as a cheap label uh, hub for the rest of the world. That may work, but that's not really what I'm building. I could have stayed in the U.S. to do that, not in that region. I think that's, um, yeah, it's so important. And uh, personally, and I think our, our listeners will appreciate that's a real um, innovative and awesome approach to, to sort of tackling that. Uh, and you, you mentioned something earlier in that when you sort of referenced the telco sector. Um, and, I, and I wanted to sort of pick up a bit more on that and, and in particular on clients. Um, have you been focusing on any, on any particular sectors or, or has it sort of just been by luck and by chance that you've, you've fallen into it? So primarily we, uh, we were focused on some sectors that also brought, you know, because of my experience and the team I put together, like FinTech was, is, you know, is our bread and butter. We know how to build very, very, very good FinTech solutions. That's because of the background that we have. Then we tra- transitioned a little bit to e-commerce, right? Which is close to FinTech too, if you think about it from a transactional standpoint. Then we, you know, got some stuff in the educational sector because we're an educational entity. So therefore we know how to, uh, sort of build systems around that. Now we are even building our marketplaces. So there's different kinds of, uh, our progression is, has been very slow, but we, we, we are, we make sure that we master. Even when we train our candidates, we tell you to pick an industry, right? And we know already and say, we want you to be the best mobile Android developer that know how to build wallets, right? So very specific. Uh, but now we were lucky enough to, to enter the, fin- uh, the, the telco market because of sort of the, the experience we have in the quality of work we do around fintech. Because, you know, I have to worry about security and all the different nuances. So we had our first telco company uh, client. I think it was a consultant. consultant from a consultancy perspective back in the day, it was Safaricom, for which we were building a lot of stuff around, um, what you call it, around uh, a fintech company wanted to integrate to Safaricom. So we got introduced to, you know, the protocols and the different things that Safaricom uses terms of the APIs and stuff. So we kind of learn from that and position ourselves as a telco service provider in terms of talent or even solution we can build. Our telco is, 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 a, is you know, telco companies are monsters in Africa. And they, they all, each of them are looking at digital transformation within their own, uh, uh, within the organization, but outside the organization, right? How can they allow customers to have better apps, right? To get the services instead of going to an agency or lining up to buy credit, what have you. So there's a tremendous opportunity that we see in Telco. The next sector we're really looking into is banking. Uh, there's so many small bank, banks in Africa, in Ethiopia loans, a lot of them in the private-owned bank, uh, localized, which allows us to compete because we can localize solutions. Uh, we understand the context and the dynamics. We understand the currency, <clears throat> all those different things. So one of the things that <clears throat> I'm looking at heavily, sir, is uh, post-COVID or while in COVID, look into healthcare now, right? Telemedicine, some of these things that we can sort of ramp up before, you know, after this, this COVID uh, goes away. So 
we're following what really Africa needs rather than, oh, let me just go do some blockchain technology because some people are doing blockchain. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying I am looking forward to the demand I will have in Africa rather than the demand worldwide because it's very hard to compete in the U.S., for example, into this market. There's thousands thousands of talent marketplaces in the U.S. Europe is a bit different because some countries have some labor laws that doesn't allow this concept of talent because, you know, you've got to pay taxes, so many different things you have to worry about. So it's, it's very slow. But Africa has a sort of a, a white canvas where you can draw and dictate what the market should be with these types of models. <clears throat> Interesting. And we will touch upon COVID in a, a bit later on as well. So I'm, I'm going to come back to that point. But something else that you mentioned earlier is you were talking about um, people in, in from the States sending you messages into the inbox saying, hey, hear what you're building um, and hear what you're doing and think it's awesome. Um, how, how did you get that message out, one? And two, you know, how, did you start, how does your talent start to come on board? Where does your pipeline for developing uh, that ta- tech talent get started? Are you guys reaching out? Um, are you going to these sort of science and tech universities and, and sort of uh, profiling in front of, you know, prospective postgrad students and undergrad students? How, how does it work? Right, so two questions. So um, there's a backstory to, to my success here. So prior to building Gadea, I used to run a different company called Coders for Africa. Okay? So Coders for Africa was sort of an exploratory model. So I wanted to move back to Africa, right, to make Africa competitive. I didn't know how. So I thought I knew Africa, because you know you know one country in Africa you think is all Africa, right? It's a concept, right? Africa is a, is a country. Then the moment I start traveling and discovering what the continent was offering in terms of talent and technology and stuff, so I went east, west, north, south, name it. Went to many countries over five, six years with this organization, Coders for Africa, which was just, I did, this was prior to the companies like Andela, some of these guys, right? But I was cheating. I had one foot in the U.S., in my, you know, comfort zone there, and one foot in Africa. Right? So I was traveling back and forth, but I had vacation, and I was in consultancy. So I was able to move around and get this stuff. So that gives me sort of the, the, the sort of the, the foresight or the information, first-hand information that I needed. So then I, from that from that company, we created an organization, which was, at the time, the largest network of software developers in Africa. We had about 5,000 people across the continent, right? So when we transitioned now to Gibea, people knew me from, from that, from Codus for Africa already, because we already did all of some projects, we worked on it with different things, we participated on a lot of things. Um, it's history, but <laughs> if you dig in, if you search Codus for Africa, you see a bunch of stuff coming back. So the people who were following me in the U.S. under that, when I made the move, they heard that I transitioned to something a little bit more structured. So they said, hey, um, listen, uh, I, I saw what you do with Africa. I need talent. I need uh, MVP build. I need a proof of concept build and so on and so forth. So that's really why, you know, sort of Gebea is a little bit more structured or sort of successful in, in that sense because of my experience. That's why when they say entrepreneurs, you have to, like, Experiment and fail and have all the entrepreneur, um, uh, other sort of ventures you build and try and stuff to be successful. It's, it's true. You can't be successful overnight. There's always a story behind. In terms of the talent, luckily in Ethiopia, we're the only one to do what we do. So you take a college student to graduate or in college. They graduate, they may not have a job. That's for sure. The only two companies to hire tech people are either HR Telecom, the telecommunication company, with your airlines. And when you come in, you're pretty much a customer service. You don't code, you, you don't do none of that technology stuff. So these young people are stuck. So they have two choices. They either get out of the country, right? Uh, potentially maybe work for a marketplace, but uh, a freelance marketplace. But for that, you need to have experience, right? People won't hire you just because you, know, you say you know Java. The other option that came in 2016 was the bear. Oh, this is an institution that comes in, specializing in certain domains, and guarantee you a job in 12 months or they give you money back. So it was sort of, we didn't even need to do marketing, to be honest with you, right? The only challenge we had was our training model is not free. You have to pay it. If, if, if it was free and I had enough capital at the time to build a marketplace, I would have 5,000, if not 6,000 of young people right now into my marketplace in Ethiopia. But I wouldn't have the capacity to build that up. So we made it sort of uh, not free because 
we want to make sure we give you the and the trainers were initially imported from the US and other parts of Africa to do the first training. Now we've transitioned into Ethiopians who've been trained, have a couple of projects under their belt from our marketplace, they're now doing the training. So we are lucky enough, that's what I'm saying, Ethiopia was sort of a very strategic move for us. If I went to Nigeria, it would have been different because you have so many competitions, so many companies doing the same thing. Nigerian will have a choice. Kenya, same type. But in Ethiopia, there's only one, Kebea, so far, to do what we do. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and you know, taking that bit about, uh, you know, talent having to, to, to pay to get onto the course and get going, which, which is, uh, very, you know, important. I wanted to pick up on that and sort of ask a little bit more about your business model. You've, I've, I know it's very, um, innovative and it puts developers first. So if, I was hoping you're going to be able to touch on that a bit. Yeah, so we just pretty much, the only reason why the business model is innovative is because we are in Africa. There's not too many people doing that. But in the US, like I said, the market of freelancing has is one of the most matured markets. Like Upwork, you take Upwork. It used to be called uh, freelance.com, I believe, or elance.com. And uh, they, they were 20 years old, by the way, 20 years old. People don't know about the story of Upwork. They bought later Odesk about, I think, four or five years ago, three years ago, and made it upward, right? And went public and all that type of stuff. So the freelance market or the, the, the marketplace we are building is already been proven. Uh, and we wanted to share, um, uh, we wanted to adopt like a shared economy, right? In Africa, we believe that people need, deserve more money than what we get paid for. You can't be a software developer in Africa and earn $200 and expecting that person to stay after he knows what he knows, right? He may leave for another $100, maybe make $500, or he may be lucky to be online and get a job for $5,000, right? So we figure, let's put most of the money into the young people's pockets. So our talent take between 70 and 80% of what project they work on. We only keep a percentage of the top of it. Because I believe marketplace is more scalable than being a traditional outsourcing model where you pay the developers $500, but you collect $5,000. Okay? Because if you build an outsourcing model, it takes you 10 to 20 years. Look at the emphasis, the big company. That's what they've done for years. But they, it, they, they have the luxury of 10 years. You don't have luxury of 10 years in the tech sector right now. One month is like almost two years, right? If you don't. So for me, I'm like, I, I want to build this, you know, wide enough. You know, I don't want to, I want it to build wide enough. So let's build a marketplace. Allow anybody who has some sort of skill. Not just tech, we started with tech eventually, as to other things that can tap in, earn enough money, and then we just grow the numbers. So it's the numbers get full. So that's how we need a business model is. On the training side, it's just, so we have two businesses in one training, which, you know, generate revenue to cover some of our operational expenses. And then the marketplace, which we're still building to scale, pretty much, which will take a little longer because it requires volumes of business, it requires volumes of talent as well. So it's very similar to what we, there's no secret to it. I, as you say, right, in the tech sector, one month is like two years. And I think at the moment, it's sort of like two weeks is four years <laughs> with everything going on. Um, yeah, you have to be nimble. You have to be quick. Uh, you, you talked about the training side of things there. Have you guys been sort of focusing on growing and developing that talent academy that you have? Yeah, definitely, because that's our pipeline, right? One one thing that differentiates us from other marketplaces in the U.S., for example, is the fact that we train our talent, right? We don't just hope that somebody registers, gives us a great profile, and it should work. We make sure, because Africa is a little bit behind, so there's a little misconception about African developers. People may have some sort of, you know, challenge to understand, well, what do you mean that there's an African developer? What does that mean? Do they have water? Do, you know, so we wanted to make sure that we alleviate that by making sure that our clients understand that these guys are trained with the technologies they want. Hence why it's important to... Uh, so the idea is, like I say, if we're able to scale the training model fast enough, if we're able to graduate in the next four or five years, 10,000 individuals in that part, then the marketplace will be generating easily $50 million. Because our developers right now are generating between, on average, about $20,000 a year. Right? So the math is easy. You take 5,000 5, of that, you have 100 million gross value, right? So um, so the training is, is the core of what we do because it builds that community center as well, right? Because you can train at Gebeya, you got a job at Gebeya, so it's, it makes it a, 
a better story to tell than just, oh, you're a marketplace where you're an inventory of human beings that you can pick, you know, and match, stuff like that. that uh, and, and people appreciate that because the educational system in Africa is behind in terms of technology or digital uh, digital you know, transformation. So uh, that's why it's very important to us. So what we've been doing, though, we've been partnering with organizations like the World Bank, IFC, who helps us fund some of the um, parts of the training. For example, one of the mandates was to have more women software engineers. So uh, we've, we've uh, they've given us the five hundred thousand dollar investment uh, to, from a in a grant from a grant perspective, not from uh, so just grants to train two hundred fifty women engineers uh, in Ethiopia, for example. So we are tapping into more of that to make sure that our pipeline for training grows. Um, eventually, we'll have our own e-learning platform, which uh, students can pay, say, $5 subscription a month to access content because they wouldn't be able to get it anyway, could access to the internet, what have you. So there's different mechanisms to really make the training itself sustainable in event scale, potentially across the country. Governments, or the government, I should say, must love what you are doing because it uh, speaks to them and their and their number one goal of um, you know creating employment. I my understanding is you you work very closely with the government and work very closely with Minister McCurry and his team in in particular. Um, you know across the tech industry, you know across the continent, we are seeing a lot of collaborative work with governments and and sort of tech businesses to solve key problems. Uh, I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of background to the work that you've been doing with the government in Ethiopia, and whether you think this will be a growing trend for tech-enabled businesses, not only in Ethiopia, but across the continent. So, uh, yeah, I, I can tell you that we're working closely with the government, that's not true, for <laughs> Where, um, but they're watching. So what we've done, though, we've uh, sort of participated in the conversation. Remember, my like I said, my goal is to make sure I participate and to make it after the competitive. So whenever we're invited or whenever there's an initiative, Kepa is usually pulled in, right? Because like you said, we have the core of, for example, what the Ethiopian government wants to do, create jobs, right? And, and smart jobs and good jobs that pay, right? If we pay an Ethiopian guy or girl for uh, $1,000 a month, that's huge. That's like a salary of a doctor in Ethiopia, right? So we're at the core of what they do. The question is, um, are there mechanisms in place for us to scale this? The problem is the government may not understand how marketplace operates. Okay, and then you have some other, even though one part of the government, say one part of the government that we're very close with is the Minister of uh, Innovation and Technology, because they understand exactly what they're doing. And then to the uh, Job Commission, the Creation Commission, uh, Creation Commission. Um, you know, held by uh, Dr. Frank, very, very smart guy who works very closely with Dr. Ian, by the way. Um, so that's who we go to. And so they challenge us and say, well, Amadi, you said 5,000. Why do you, why 5,000? Why can't you go 100,000 or train a lot more people? I said, well, physically or um, it, it's impossible. But even if you funded like a billion dollars, it still would take you a long time to get to train 100,000 people. Right? It, it doesn't work that way. There's so many mechanisms that you have to. So we end up saying, okay, let's try to see if we can train 10,000. Right? And now the question is, well, how do we fund it? So the government now turns around and go and try to find uh, like a PPP project, right? Where, say, the World Bank would fund it and then the funding would serve as a scholarship for the students, right? To take the class or something like that. Um, but we are influencing also, we sit in example into the board on some boards that we are giving out our sort of uh, experience on how to do this and stuff like that. But again, we are too small. We're still too small, right? Uh, I think the investment that we got uh, in kind of woke up a few people into the country, country and said, hmm, this is interesting, but we're still too small. Um, but in terms of, for example, the educational side, uh, we are treated as a vocational training institution, which is perfect for us because it's not an academic sort of institution. That we collaborate very well with the vocational training institution uh, agency, uh, which is we collaborated them. Like we exchange, we help them with a lot of things. You know, they were able to understand what we're doing because when we first moved in, they didn't know. Okay, what do you mean you're going to train people in blockchain? All right? What does that mean? All right? So they needed to understand is it software, is it technology, and stuff like that. So we needed to sort of adapt our curriculum based on the, the laws of the country or some of the things. So that we were able to do. 
people. We're not collaborating like, um, you know, like you would think, right, uh, with governments in Africa, whether it is in Kenya or in Ethiopia. But they're watching and they respect what we do. Too small for the moment, I'm going to say yeah. as well. <laughs> big Once road, I raise big $20 million, maybe it'll be a different story. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And hopefully that moment comes very soon. Um, no, I think it's really, really interesting, actually. You sort of reference PPPs there. And, uh, you know, speaking to a number of sort of tech entrepreneurs, they, they keep sort of suggesting that, you know, there's a lot of collaborative work that they can be doing with governments. And it sort of seems like that's a, a bit of a growing trend. So I'm quite interested to, to see how that develops over the, the next 12 months, especially um, given everything going on at the moment with COVID-19. Um, but I wanted to take this moment actually to pivot away a bit from, from the Gabea story and sort of talk about the, the tech landscape generally across the continent and um, sort of you know, maybe even sort of laser eye in on on fundraising and, and getting a little bit of funding going. Because um, I know you guys are, and you particularly are well positioned to give feedback, advice, guidance to, to other entrepreneurs out there. Um, you know, you know Gabayana acts as that incubator and accelerator for many sort of techpreneurs. Um, so I just wanted to, to, to get a little bit of... Um, Give a little bit of a background to you know that mega seed funding round that happened earlier this year. Uh, congrats, obviously, on it. Uh, tell us a bit about that. Um, how, how did that sort of come about? A lot of pain and <laughs> suffering. <but laughs> um, the, the greatest challenge was being an Ethiopian company because people don't understand Ethiopia. Uh, they didn't understand the investment structure in Ethiopia. Uh, so you have to tell a good story. And you, it's not just a story, you have to back the back of the data. Our due diligence process was oof, horrible. In, in, but good in the horrible in going through the process, but good in, in terms of we learned so much from it. And we, we are a better company because of it. So funding usually takes what they say, right? Six to 12 months, depending on when you start talking to investors. Uh, it took us about 12 months to, to do that, but it, the biggest handicap for us is sometimes when you're in a, a sector where there's other people who raise significant amount of money before you, uh, automatically people sort of brace themselves, especially investors who invest in Africa. So the biggest challenge was, oh, well, how are you compare with that? That's the first discussion when you walk in uh, to, to a room of, uh, with investors. Then at first I was always trying to defending it, and then at some point I'm like, then you haven't even done your due diligence because in the U.S., right? You go. I'm familiar with the U.S. You go into a, uh, an investor room. Yeah. They know there's competition. Competition is supposed to happen. That's how you differentiate yourself. That's how you sort of shape your product to fit a particular segment, a niche that may actually later on, you know, uh, take over. People always remember Google versus Yahoo, right? They remember this thing, but in Africa, because there's so little sort of media or or storytelling that whoever tells the better story and raises the most money, that's it. You cover the entire thing. So the greatest challenge you'll face for a startup like us, or some others, right, even fintech companies, is, well, let's just take Andela. It's not I'm picking on them. They're good friends of us, right? But it's more of, let me use it as a benchmark. Okay, Andela raised this kind of money. Well, they have so much money. Well, how are you going to compete? I said, okay, are you talking continent-wide? Are you talking country-wide? What are you talking about? Because as far as we know at the time, uh, Andela was in uh, Nigeria and Kenya at the time. And they published, publicly told people that they had 1,500 engineers. Uh, if you look at our model where I'm going after the African market, SMEs, businesses, and stuff like that, uh, how are 1,500 developers who be able to serve the entire continent? As a matter of fact, there was so little that they were creating problems within Nigeria because everybody thought they should deserve Andela salary. So by you just thinking Andela, which has after four years, 1,500 developers, is, is immediately a problem for me, then maybe we're not, you're not the right investor. Look at my model, see how different I am, and so on and so forth. So those are the things that entrepreneurs in Africa deal with because some other people sort of uh, pioneered uh, the, the funding thing and covered the entire story. It's very hard for you to come back with the story. Um, so it's more of the storytelling and also 
the, the learning how to find smart investors or what we call in my co-founder smart money. Let me give you an example. If you look at our three investors who you know, gave us this, this $2 million seed investment, one is a corporate, the other one is a pretty significant VC firm, Partech, I mean, you know them, $3.9 billion fund, but they do have that uh, African fund, right? $168 million, I believe. Then you have a Nigerian investment firm, VC firm. So, which really we sort of maneuver around that because we were sure that if we were um, getting orange, we'll be able to have access to Francophone Africa. And, right? Because the most sort of notable uh, uh, company, corporation in, in, in Francophone Africa is orange, it's a telephone company. There's others like Total and some of these guys, but in Africa, uh, Francophone Africa is Total. They're everywhere. And they have a huge digital transformation strategy from the top down. So we figured, okay, we can at least serve all the affiliates of Orange. We can at least serve all of the uh, customers or, you know, we can use that brand, especially to even get to the sort of the, the lower customers that Orange can, 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 can fill. So it was very strategic to have it. So it gives us a, a potential uh, way to generate revenue, but at the same time, give us access to a market that we didn't know how to penetrate. Then you get Partec with his might from the maturity of the, of the brand and the access in the U.S. later. So if I'm looking for, say, prominent investors and features in the U.S. that Partec is in, hands down. You know, this is, I just have to prove my numbers and, and then the question would be, you know, and Partec would help, right? Uh, and Partec is also investing in a lot of sort of companies in Africa, FinTech and stuff like that. I can tap into that as well. And then last but not least, you got a Nigerian event. So people ask me, why didn't you go to Nigeria? I'm scared of Nigeria. I'm not going to lie. Until I have someone who can be the second CEO, literally, to run Nigeria. And potentially, it has to be a Nigerian who understands the market. And stuff like that. But by having an investor early as a Nigerian investor who's respected into the, into the ecosystem, I can easily sort of maneuver my way in <clears throat> when I'm ready to, to move to Nigeria. So what I was looking at, other entrepreneurs who just want to just get money from anywhere, I'm like, slow down. As in, in Africa, it's different. In the U.S., you can do that because your investor may even give you the check. It might not talk to you for another year. But in Africa, there's so many scrutiny into what you do. Are you legal? Are you so many questions that you're like, wait a minute, am I a criminal or what am I doing here? So it's, it's so nuanced. So when I talk to other fellow entrepreneurs and tell them how you did it, I said, well, you have to really look for the right entrepreneurs and be persistent. You can't just get, I'm sorry, uh, the right investors. You can't just, you know, throw the thing on the wall like we do in the U.S. and hope it sticks, right? You really have to be strategic and say, would this investor, uh, if I sit at, at the board meeting, in a board meeting with this investor, what are we going to talk about? Are we going to argue about me that need my number or someone who can say, you know what, let me alleviate that problem for you. Let me open up this market for you. That kind of strategy. So, but there's tremendous amount of money now coming into Africa in terms of investment. Right, so, uh, but it's still small. I think it was a billion dollar, according to Partech, billion and something for 2019. And one company in the U.S. raised one billion dollars. So we are so far behind that um, some of us, like, like we're pioneering this thing. Right, we raised two million dollars seed in Ethiopia. So we're pioneers. So we're giving hope for the rest of the entrepreneurs who's coming behind us. I think the story will sort of unfold that way. I can't wait to raise Series A properly. Uh, I was hoping to do that within the next 12 to 18 months, but we're pushing it back to 24 months just because of COVID. Um, and then because the recession is going to come after, we're we playing it smart. So uh, maybe you have more specific questions on that. But. We, can, we can touch upon that a tiny bit later. Um, yeah, you've got to be strategic who you speak to us and which investors are going to be able to, to not only give you the sort of funding that you're looking for, but are, are going to be sort of, um, you know, have that amplifier effect and help you grow and, and, and get you in front of the right people. You know, where did, where did you guys initially start looking? Uh, I know a lot of people look for angel investors, look at crowdfunding sources, you know, look at going to accelerator programs. Um, if you were to do it all over again, where, where would you sort of start looking at? Angels, right? So my co-founder was an angel investor. So I was lucky in that regard. So if I didn't have him, uh, I don't think we, wanna, we would have gone this far, 
right? Because angel is the, <clears throat> is where you will get the trusted investor who would come in and say, I believe in you. Because the product may not even work, but I believe in you. So you need someone who believes in you, not necessarily uh, of what you're going to do, what is the risk and all that stuff. They believe that you're the right person that can deliver, right? So angel is what I would have done if I didn't have uh, my co-founder come in and chip in, you know, money that we needed at the time. But then at some point, once you're done with the angel, you're like, okay, uh, we need to grow. Uh, you need different perspectives. You need people who have a different sort of reach that we did. So at that point, the most natural, if we had another angel, it wouldn't work, right? Because I needed to move fast, right? So unless that angel was like extremely connected and had time in the world to sit down every now and then and talk to me about it. So we decided, you know what, let's just go VC. We were a bit sort of scared at the same time. <clears throat> when you go to VC route, you know, the company starts shaping up differently just because of the governance and all the different things that I wasn't familiar with as an entrepreneur first because it's a learning process. But we needed VC <clears throat> to give <clears throat> excuse me, to give us that reach because we build in a marketplace. We're gonna need cash. We're in it for the long term. It's a it's a volume business. It's not your traditional it's like a fintech, right? Although our margins are much better than fintech. But you need volume, you need uh you need uh, branding by having Patrick and Orange, you know, that trigger you to come and talk to me. If I was still, you know, with an angel thing, and I, unless I win a big contract with the government, something like that, you wouldn't, you wouldn't probably not even talk to me. But because you have this name that come in, you're like, hmm, there's something special about this company, special about this entrepreneur that we need to talk about. Then that's the VC. The next step is more VCs, uh, but strategic ones again, right? Because the, the, the number one thing I need to do in the next year is to make sure the platform becomes a name. Africa becomes sort of attraction where everybody who thinks of talent, oh, let's go to Gabea. That's the first company uh, they go to in, this, in thought. So strategic investors, initially so angel, then you go to VC naturally, and then more VCs eventually. If the IPO <laughs> environment in Africa looks <laughs> maybe will IPO, but uh, I think it's been diluted so far. Uh, and we'll see what happens. And you also mentioned something earlier with Orange is, is having that corporate partner. And we've seen a lot more corporates enter enter into Africa's uh, tech scene. Do you think that trend is only going to grow? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially now that we have the talent. Because some, some corporates came and left because of talent. It was too costly to do business. They bring their guys with them and they realize, well, the return investment wasn't fast enough, so they did, right? Um, so yes, because the talent is here now, and not, I'm not when I say talent, I don't mean people who just work for them. I mean entrepreneurs, right? If you build a successful fintech company, you take a company like there's a company in Senegal called Let me just take a random fintech company. When you're a fintech company, say, oh, Paydunia, it's called Paydunia, right? They hope to do all the banks and all the mobile money payments. Orange money and stuff like that. So they extend the reach of Orange or any other corporation, right? So now that the shape, the, the every country is shaping up with new entrepreneurs and startups who are doing things, it's more attractive for multinationals to come in and leverage, for example, an agent network that exists, right? So this is going to be actually the biggest. I think people don't talk about that much. They always talk about the funding from VCs and stuff. But I think the biggest enabler of entrepreneurs in Africa are corporate, multinational corporates, or corporates who are here, who are you know localized or local uh, uh, enterprises who leverage it, who leverage these entrepreneurs and these startups. If they, like I just say, like Orange has given us a big boost just by being an investor. Yeah. So my bet would be that's why I'm saying I want to build a con- the, the model of Gibeya. Resilient enough to serve the African market needs. Right? So if a multinational comes in, if Microsoft comes in, like they did in Kenya, uh, we were not ready, so they were with Mandela, but <laughs> so they will go to Kenya, they see, Kibaya, oh, okay, yes, let's plug into them. They have the resources, right? Or they can tap into me to get advice on certain things, what have you. Nice. Um... I promised earlier that we were going to touch upon COVID-19 again <laughs> um, during during our talk today. Um, do you think that this is going to have an, uh, an impact on, on sort of future funding over the next 12 months? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
no doubt. Everybody's holding on to their cash. It's not going to happen. It's not going to Because if I wasn't to think about it, why would I invest in a company that can potentially die in three, six months? Nobody knows. So if you already invested, you want to make sure that your portfolio is still good. So I still have like weekly meeting with my board, right? On, on strategy assumptions, you know, how do we mitigate this, that way? So if you're too busy, sort of at least keeping your current companies alive rather than venturing, unless it's really sort of like you, you're about to close a deal before and then COVID come, but this company is not really affected. But that's, that's, that's a very small portion of our startups in Africa, right? Um, so yeah, you have to wait and see because it's not just COVID, right? I'm not worried because COVID is one of two things. Either you get sick, right? You get treated and you feel better or something, unfortunately, you can die, right? So it's one of the two things. But what's happening after COVID is the recession, right? We all know there's going to be a recession. There's 20 million people who lost their jobs in the United States of America. I'm watching that. I'm not watching what's going on in Africa because whatever happens in the Western world or even in Asia, eventually, a year later, it's only a year later that Africa will feel it. Every recession that's happened, happened. So, because money is not going to be sort of, you know, employed anymore, Africa relies a lot on aid, so government's going to be, you know, stranded, and all kinds of stuff. So, you got to wait till you know at least what the recession said. Hopefully, this COVID thing is flattening. So, maybe three, three months down the line, we'll know, and then we'll see the numbers, the economics numbers. So, everybody's Giving stimulus packages, right? Well, how's, how's, if I fire 15 of my guys, um, and I'm, and I'm getting a stimulus check for each of them, uh, and I reopen, say, uh, six months from now, well, do, uh, am I, am I still relevant even at that point? So there's so many nuances that we don't understand yet. So every investor, if I was an investor right now, I'll hold on. I'll hold on and see who's the most now. The good news is those who come out of COVID or the recession, going to get a lot of money right because you you're resilient enough you you went through the whole pain so it's a natural selection right for for startups and entrepreneurs unfortunately so a lot of startups will die and if you look at the numbers in the u.s i'm not sure if you're looking there's a lot of startups who are closed doors let alone those who are still you know hanging on to uh to a thread so yeah it's gonna, it's gonna be it's gonna, it's gonna be tough we're just lucky I'm not sure if it's preparation, but we were lucky to close right in February before this hit. But imagine you didn't close. Or imagine I was still in discussion. All these guys would say, hold on. Can you even generate clients? Or if you can't generate clients, how are you going to grow? How are you going to justify your valuation? Just remember right now, valuation is a problem. Right? You can't value what you used to say. Different now. Because COVID may impact your business. If you're growing 10% month over month, now you grow 2% over month. So how you, how you justify it in your valuation? On which, what, what, what's the future of your business? Right. So it's really, really tough right now for entrepreneurs. Really tough. Absolutely. And it, I, yeah. You know, what you just said, right? I think it goes back to that, that age old expression of timing is everything. <laughs> and it sounds like you guys timed it spot on in that sense, but it is going to be a tough, 12, 24, if not longer, um, 12, 24 months, that is, period. Um, but yeah, it, it sort of will be a period to show that resilience. And, and, and you know, there's going to be a number of interesting, new, innovative solutions that come out of this. And that sort of leads quite nicely into the next point. Um, with that in mind, and obviously we have COVID-19 as the backdrop, what's exciting you most in the tech industry at the moment? Anything around telemedicine, healthcare, um, anything around logistics company. So you're going to have a lot more companies doing deliveries and stuff like that. Um, anything around e-commerce, I think there's going to be a bunch of, even businesses will become their own, will have their own e-commerce site. And we have a couple of people that contact us on stores to say, how can I put my business online and accept payment remotely so I can deliver? Um, I think that anything, uh, Around that, of course, the, the traditional data science, AI, all that stuff, of course, is going to happen. It's going to happen whether it is good. Those kinds of things rely on data. And there's so much data right now. Uh, that, you know, in the past, if you look at the past 60 days, you know, the amount of data that this, this, this sort of AI initiative that's picking up is insane. So those will, will just keep growing or even be better. But in terms of what would affect uh, commerce and stuff like that, anywhere from e-commerce 
fintech and mobile payment. Like I don't know if you watched recently about maybe a week ago, two weeks ago, there's an announcement that Ethiopia now is ready for mobile payment. You, you saw that headline? Absolutely, we did, yeah. So which means that so in Ethiopia, have you, if, you have, if you have been in Ethiopia, all your transactions is pretty much cash. Right? You, so you spend most of the time counting, you know, 100, 100 uh, per uh, bills, right? So that, that, that's going to change because if you have COVID, you know, you count, you pass it on to someone, you're supposed to wash your hands, and there's a lot of money movement. So the government say, yo, this, we have to make sure that we implement mobile payment. So that's huge for Ethiopia. Imagine overnight, you know, everybody, the majority of people in Addis Ababa only have mobile payment. The changes is going to happen. It's, it's, it's sort of like, it's huge in Ethiopia because you go from not, like, imagine not having light and all of a sudden the light is turned off. And the, the, the innovations around that, right? Then you can have a credit app, right? You can have insurance app. You can now pay your bills using your mobile app. You can do so many things. And, and it because, and the reason why I know it's going to be successful is because I think the HO Telecom is going to champion it because Ethiopia does not allow foreign banks and you need a bank to kind of guarantee these transactions or some sort of things in, in Ethiopia. So the most sort of eligible, uh, company that can start this mobile payment, similar to what Safaricom has done in Kenya, would be HO Telecom. If the Telecom already has 50 to 60 million customers, and if you know how mobile payment with telco works is, every number is potentially a mobile wallet. You just haven't activated yet. Okay? So you can have growth 200% month over month. Let's say you, you act, uh, a million people activated today and they go talk. Right? Now pay me with this, pay me with that, right? Then next month, it's, the growth is going to be uh, crazy. So I want to tap into that. Right? I want to tap into either provide services or talent a few. Just for Ethiopia. And then you know that we also also asking for two new licenses, right? Um, so it'd be three telco licenses in Ethiopia. So that country after COVID, I don't think you'll be you you'll be able to organize it. I'll give you twenty four months. That country will transform over that because of just this that the, the mobile money, the access to cheaper internet. Uh, you know, it's, it's just it's tremendous opportunity. Absolutely, tremendous. I think. I think COVID-19 is going to be that sort of catalytic push that the country um, sort of has and pushes it into going completely um, or going to as close as digital as it can be. Um, and very exciting. It's going to be really interesting to see, as you say, those next 24 months and how they pan out. Um, you say next 24 months, what's coming up at Gabea, what products should we be looking out for? Anything new going to be hitting the market? Are we going to be seeing you continent-wide? What's next? Uh, yeah, three things. So one is the platform, because so far, people, we are marketplace, but we're not a true marketplace because we don't have a platform. Most of the things that we, the clients, they reach out to through our website, to a simple form or inboxes or stuff like that. But now we are in the process of, uh, which is part of the funding, to really launch this platform by the first quarter of next year, which is exciting. So we can do it without, you know, uh, pretty much pressure uh, with COVID and anything. So that's one big thing because then it will sort of um, grow, sort of, uh, oh, a scale uh, our, our products and services, right? Because then people just go to the website, order talent, submit a project, pay online, what have you, all this, you know, right? Um, over the next 24 months, also one of the things we're doing now, we're providing fee, premium services to, we haven't announced it yet, but I guess by the time this podcast goes live, we'll, we'll see a few social media out there. Because uh, we figured, okay, how can we help other entrepreneurs or startups or even small businesses in Africa during COVID? We know they don't have cash or whether they want to hold on to cash. What kind of services can we offer them? So this out, these services can be anything from a 10 hour, um, sort of consultancy or evaluating your tech team or, evaluating your doing some audit security or even going to explaining how fundraising works, right? Because we've done it already um, with insights and stuff like that. So what will translate will be we'll be able to touch so many startups that when we go live, they'll remember the brand like we were here, right? We don't have cash to give out, but we can give out free services because we have talent who are sort of sitting around sometime and wanted to do some stuff. So that's one thing uh, we plan to do. So uh, going Pan-African is starting, so 
remember we started in Ethiopia, then Kenya, now we're going to Senegal because of the, the francophone market. We were going to go to Cote d'Ivoire, but um, because of the elections and stuff, we weren't sure. Senegal being the most stable country in the francophone region, at least in West Africa, uh, we decided to start, you know, so an orange help, right? So uh, francophone Africa would be pretty much uh, big in our agenda. Uh, COVID kind of slowed it down a little bit, but as soon as things started picking up again, uh, we should be able to, and we like those regions where nobody cares to care about. So Ethiopia, nobody cared about Ethiopia, right? Entrepreneurs would be like, what? Ethiopia? Um, and then Senegal too, or what? Are they like 14 million people? Or they speak French? Like, well, what's the number one startup in Senegal? You know, people don't know because the language barriers, what have you. So you rather enter those markets where people don't go and pretty much sort of be very solid in those and then build a brand from there. That's not plan. I'm looking forward to seeing that that plan come into fruition over the next few years then. Um, I know we're running out of time today, so I've got one final question for you. Or actually, yeah, well, it is a question. So if you could give one piece of advice to, to entrepreneurs, one key piece of advice to entrepreneurs out there, what would it be? And I also want to flip it as well. And if you had one piece of advice for investors out there, what would it be? For the entrepreneur, you got to get a coach. I wish I had a coach. We think we know. We don't know anything. So if you're an entrepreneur out there trying to figure this thing, a mentor is different than a coach, yeah? Mentor, you can tap in and give you advice. Yeah? A coach is somebody who actually follows you. Think about a coach for Messi, right? Football player, right? So everybody needs a coach. So I wish I had a coach early enough. Um, I'm actually just starting to explore that. I have uh, actually three coaches now. Uh, that helping me anything from emotional intelligence to how to build a marketplace to how do you become a more effective leader in terms of communication, those type of stuff. And they get you through that process. Uh, it's not easy because you discover some about <laughs> you that didn't know uh, before. And the reason why I say that because it tied into your second question, which is you are the person in which uh, these investors invested. Your idea, that's not what they invest. They just want to make sure you're the right person that can take it to a certain stage. Um, that's what I've discovered when I've been talking to investors. Right? Sometimes they don't even look at your business model. They just observe you, just listening to you see, can this person really build what he's saying he's building? Does he have the conviction? Does he have the right skills? Do I have the right entourage, the right network to do that? So investors, what advice can I give? I mean, they're in a tough spot, right? Especially if you invest in Africa, because there's thousands of thousands of entrepreneurs and stuff looking for funding. Uh, I'm like, if I was in their shoes, what would I do? Uh, you don't have enough time to be doing a day, right? Uh, and you get all these different requests. Sometimes you see the business uh, proposal or, or pitch deck that just don't make any sense. But entrepreneur is great. Um, I, I really can't give you any advice until I become one. So if I, okay, let me take a take step back. If I was one investor to just pick who I wanted to invest in, um, I'll spend a lot of time coaching that entrepreneur on something he's lacking or she's lacking. But for your traditional VCs and stuff, I, I have no idea. Man. I, I guess just keep investing. I mean, that's, the, that's one of the things I can, uh, even, every now and then you run into somebody that's exceptional, uh, that can, you know, or a team that's exceptional. That can, uh, one of my investors told me the only reason why they invest in is because of me. So, and uh, the skills I have. So once I understood that, I'm like, huh, that's how you, that's how the game is played. It's not really about your product. Marketplace is marketplace. Anybody can build one. However, can you really make it sustainable and turn into successful venture? Uh, so yeah, those are the two things. I like that. Keep investing, right? Yeah. Keep, keep the inbound cash flows coming. Um, absolutely. No, Amadou, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Uh, it is great to learn more about Kabea, learn about yourself. And um, I'm also hoping we're going to see uh, you investing soon on that last point uh, into a, a number of different entrepreneurs out there. So I'll be keeping an eye on that. Uh, for those of us who are listening that want to keep up to date with you and Gabea, what's the best way to do it? Is it LinkedIn? Is it Twitter? Is it Instagram? How do we do it? Uh, LinkedIn and email because I'm not out there in the social media. 
this is from a choice perspective. I rather focus on building a company than my personal <laughs> image for now until I really become achieve my this kind of success I want. So easily LinkedIn, if you hit me up, I'll I'll, I'll respond quickly. An email at Amadou Amadou at Gibeira.com. Awesome. No, I love it. Brilliant. Amadou, thanks very much again. Uh, look forward to seeing you either in Dakar or in Addis next time we're there. And uh, next time you're in London, come say hi. Uh, but really appreciate you taking the time. Stay healthy, stay safe, and speak soon. Thank you very much, George. Hi. Appreciate it. Bye.